Welcome to Preheated, kitchen wisdom and friendly chat from two friends who love to bake. I'm Andrea Ballard in Olympia, Washington. And I'm Stefan Cohn in London. Every week, we celebrate the successes, failures, learning, and laughs that go hand in hand with baking for those we love. Today, we'll review that classic Italian cookie, the pignoli, and find out if we'll be reserving these precious delights to just once a year or adding them into our regular cookie rotation. We'll also introduce a tiramisu that you can assemble in just 10 minutes on the weekend. Is this make-ahead dessert the perfect solution to a busy Valentine's Day? Finally, move over Hershey's. We'll explore my newfound fascination with plain old milk chocolate, which is not so plain after all. So grab yourself some coffee and get ready for some sweet talk. Andrea, this week is Valentine's Day, so happy Valentine's Day to you and all of our listeners out there. Yes, happy Valentine's Day, my friend. It's on Friday. I'm going Mm -hmm. to make a strong suggestion that no one go out to eat that night. I've never had a good experience at a restaurant on Valentine's Day. (laughs) Well, bah humbug. Um, But yes... (laughs) I know. What's the Valentine's Day equivalent of that? No, I am. Um, yeah, it's often very expensive to go out on Valentine's. So yeah. stay in and make this week's bake along. That's my suggestion. That is my suggestion as well. But Andrea, something that is often gifted this time of year, of course, the classic conversation heart. Yes. We thought it would be so funny to take a look, and who knew there was such a rich and delicious history of the conversation (laughs) heart? Do you remember when we did um, our marshmallows back in episodes 153 and 154? Yeah. And we learned that the marshmallow actually started life as medicine for sore throats and other ailments. Well, turns out, so did the conversation heart. In 1847, Boston pharmacist Oliver Chase invented a machine that made the processing of medical lozenges easier and that led him to develop the first candy making machine and he subsequently founded Necco wafers. Andrea did you know the first shocker of this episode that Necco stands for the New England Candy Company? (laughs) Strangely enough I did know that because I have a friend who actually likes Necco wafers. Mm -hmm. I'm not a Necco wafer lover so when I heard they were going bankrupt you know I didn't lose an ounce of sleep over it but I remember I believe she ordered something like six cases of Necco wafers because she was afraid she wouldn't be able to get them anymore. Oh, gosh. Well, there's a better ending to that story in just a moment. But (laughs) So here we have Oliver with his lozenge-making machine, his candy-making machine, not one to be outdone. His brother, Daniel, 15 years after that invention, discovered a way to press words into the wafers with vegetable dye, and they became heart-shaped around 1902, and hence conversation hearts were born. Now, they were originally really big and able to fit such pulse-quickening phrases as, how long shall I have to wait? Please be considerate. (laughs) I just love that. Well, lest we think that conversation hearts were born here in the United States, I did a little bit of digging and found that they are actually based on something that is much older and came from your side of the pond. Oh, you're kidding. Yeah, so back in the late 16th century, 
William Shakespeare mentioned something called kissing comfits okay. in the Merry Wives of Windsor. Mm-hmm. And these were little candies that British yeah. men and women exchanged in order to sweeten their breath and perhaps ask for a kiss. Oh. Now, did they have a lot in common with this kind of Necco wafer kind of very chalky conversation heart that we think of today? Yeah, so there are some similarities. Um, They were made of sugar paste with flavorings of musk, civet, ambergris, and orris powder. Oh my gosh, it's like a perfume. I think it's like a perfume, and I I, I mean, aren't those like animal hormones? (laughs) Yeah, right. Yeah, not too tantalizing. (laughs) So they were pressed into molds that had mottos on them, and... Sometimes candy makers printed those mottos on paper and then inserted them into the sugar paste. And then over time, the writing migrated onto the sugar paste. So the messages on Victorian conversation lozenges were a lot different than the messages you might see today. Mm, Right. Which is like, text me. Yeah. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Versus, how do you flirt? And can you polka? I hope so. Those were some of the racier (laughs) mottos. I'm not giving a heart to anyone who can't poke. Let's just say that. (laughs) My favorite is that there were some temperance messages and things like take ye not to strong drink or honor your parents also had their fans. I'm handing out the honor your parents this this Valentine's Day. (laughs) Our kids are going to love us. Oh, my gosh. Well, that cracks me up that not only do they have this transatlantic connection, just like you and I, but you start digging into these very innocuous things and you always just find hilarious history. Yeah, it's such a nice history. And lo and behold, for those NECA wafer lovers here in the States, fear not. Apparently last year, they did not produce the Conversation Hearts because NECA went bankrupt, but they were acquired by another company at the end of 2018. And apparently the Sweetheart Conversation Hearts will be available in 2020. Phew. And forevermore. (laughs) How long shall I have to wait? Please be considerate. (laughs) Listeners, a reminder, this is our book club month. We are reading Risotto and Nettles by Anna Del Conte, and we will discuss it in our last episode of the month, episode 165. So if you haven't found the book, go ahead and grab it. It's one of those food memoirs that Stefan and I love where you have a chapter that almost always is followed by a recipe at the end of the chapter. Yeah, and I've started reading it, Andrea. I find it to be a very quick read as well. So if you haven't got it yet, don't worry. February is a short month, but you're going to be in good shape still. I agree. Yeah, you can plow right through it. Well, Andrea, in our first week of Vazzamore, Italian Sweets, month of February, we made a classic Sicilian cookie called a pignoli. And these cookies get their name from their star ingredient, or might I say one of their star ingredients, and that is a full cup of pignoli or pine nuts. Some of the other ingredients were two eight ounce cans of almond paste, confectioner's sugar, salt, egg whites, and honey. That's really it. It was maybe all about the method. Andrea, this was a cookie you were really excited about tackling during this month. So let us know how it went for you. Well, I'm going to start out by letting you know that I have renamed this the $45 cookie. (laughs) 
<laughs> oh, is that right? Uh, yeah, I'll tell you why. So I mentioned in last week's show that I was having some trouble tracking down this almond paste. Yeah. The recipe specifies in a can, but my research showed that it now comes more in like a foil wrapper that's inside of a box. I mean, I think that's yep. just a packaging change. Yes. But specifically, you were not meant to get marzipan and you were not meant to get the almond paste in a tube. Yeah. And I also discovered an almond pie and pastry filling that definitely was not what you were after either right right so I went ahead and ordered my first order of almond paste online and the best deal was to get it in a four pack and it was about $22 yeah then a freak snowstorm hit my area (laughs) and so day after day after day I'm getting this notification from UPS your delivery has been delayed your delivery has been delayed so I started to panic I mean it was odd that the UPS man could not get down my driveway but I could get up my driveway Mm. to my local grocery store well he wasn't motivated by the almond paste emergency (laughs) apparently not he was not motivated but I was able to find this at my local Safeway so I was able to get two boxes and they were seven dollars each so there was another fourteen dollars The pine nuts were also a pricey ingredient, as mentioned in the recipe. The first package that I picked up was a two-ounce package that was $7. And luckily, I thought right before I bought it, I thought, I'm going to check in the bulk section. And they did have some pine nuts in the bulk section. And I was able to get my four and a half ounces needed there for a total of $9. So anyway, that's where my, my 45 bucks comes up with. I had... Uh, you know, $36 spent on almond paste and another nine on my pine nuts. Now, that's not really fair to blame that full cost on all of that almond paste because, of course, now I do have leftover almond paste. I could make some more batches. Yeah, you must have just almond paste coming out of your ears. Yeah, I'm, I'm yeah. fully prepared. So <laughs> totally. this might this might not be a once a year cookie for me, but let's actually talk about the technique. So obviously preheat the oven first, that's easy. But then <laughs> second step is that you want to pulse that almond, almond paste in a food processor until it's broken up into small bits. So I did that first. I pulsed it for about one minute until it was broken up I thought the way that I wanted it and then I added in the confectioner's sugar and the salt it says continue to pulse until finely ground about one minute Mm -hmm. and that is how long it took mine until it resembled what I would call you know breadcrumbs or sand or perhaps you know parmesan is that what yours look like after your food processor yeah, you know, at this point, it was it was great. It was broken into small bits. Everything was coming together really nicely. It smells really good. If you haven't worked with oh, that almond paste before, it just has a wonderful flavor and aroma. And in fact, Andrea, I was, you know, taking little nibbles at this point. It was mm-hmm. really, really good. Yeah. Um, I just love that flavor. I love that texture. And at this point then, we mentioned this last week, you know, you're going from a food processor into your electric mixer. And we both kind of said, you know what, we've kind of got a lot riding on this recipe. You just mentioned the cost. Yeah. And we're going to follow it to the letter. So I transferred then everything into my KitchenAid with my paddle attachment, put in that mixture from the food processor, my egg whites. Now, I didn't have honey, so I substituted Lyle's, but that was just two tablespoons, so I thought that would be okay. We'll see in a moment how that worked out for me. And then you're mixing that about five minutes. That's a really long time, and the batter will be very thick. Again, I had no problems, and my batter got very thick. Did yours, Andrea? 
Mine did. I did have honey. You know, the recipe calls for a mild honey. Yeah. I don't know that I would call mine mild. I've talked in the past about my newfound fascination with honey now that I'm getting it from a friend of mine who Yes. I was gonna say makes it. She doesn't make it. She you know, she well, provides she bees. Yeah. Yeah, there mm-hmm. you go. She provides yeah. the space for the bees to make it. And I thought about using the Lyles. You know, I mentioned last week there were a lot of comments on this recipe and I do think that the inclusion of the honey is actually a controversial decision because some oh. people feel like these should not be overly sweet mm-hmm. and that almond paste does already have a little bit of sugar in it. Yep. You're adding another cup and a half of confectioner's sugar. So I used honey. You use Lyle's. I think you might even be okay not using anything. But, you know, that two tablespoons is not a huge amount given the amount of uh, batter that you're going to have. Exactly. Maybe it's adding a little bit of moisture there along with those mm-hmm. egg whites. Yeah. 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 So then with that very thick batter, you can put that into a pastry bag. I don't have one, so I took the option there in the last half of that instruction to just spoon about one and a half inch rounds, about an inch apart, onto your baking sheets that are lined with parchment. And then you spread the pignoli or you press the pignoli into the tops of the cookies. At this point, they look adorable. They're kind of like a little hedgehog or something. They're all bristling with the pignoli and they're so cute. And I was so excited and I put them in and you even switch the position of the sheets halfway through the baking, about 12 to 15 minutes and they're looking so great. And I was checking them and I switched them, still looking great. Andrea, and that's when disaster struck. Oh no. At about minute 10, they completely formed one giant cookie. Oh my gosh. So they all just melted and spread into each other? They melted and spread. It was like it was happening in slow motion, (laughs) but I... (laughs) Like running to get my pot holder. No! Oh man. Pull it out. And I mean, there was nothing to be done about it. You'll see in my pictures... It looks like a big kind of lacy mat of, I mean, you can still see the pine nuts. You know, it looks very pretty and golden and all of this. Lacy almond mat was not what you were after. It just, there was no way it was anything but one giant cookie. I will say it was very tasty (laughs) still, but it was not what was intended. So I'm hoping that didn't happen for you. It didn't happen for me. And a big part of the reason is perhaps you might think that I cheated listeners when you hear this, but Stefan and I often exchange photos, although we don't have the conversation about what happened. <laughs> and she did send me the photo of what I am uh, hereafter going to call her lacy almond mat. And so I thought, oh my gosh, I do not want that to happen. So yeah, I believe the caption was, uh-oh. Yeah, exactly. So a couple of things that I did differently that weren't in the recipe, and I do believe this might have led to my success. Okay. First of all, I decided with almost all cookies that I make, I refrigerate the dough before I bake mm-hmm. them. So okay. after step three, when I had my very thick batter, I popped that into the fridge for about mm, 30 minutes. Okay. Then in step four, I used my small cookie scoop. Yes. And I scooped my rounds out and I put them onto the baking sheets. Now, this is actually where I had my first problem, which is that the dough was very sticky. And I yeah. found mm-hmm. from reading the comments, a lot of people said to use ice water. So I got a bowl of ice water handy, and that made a huge difference. I mean, I think I just did my first two cookies before I was like, okay, wait a minute, this isn't going to work. And then yeah. I got the ice 
ice water out and that worked beautifully. So I just okay. kept icing my hands between every single, you know, time I, I pressed the dough out of the scoop and onto my hand and then that it would just roll into a ball quite nicely and then yeah. I just inverted it into the pine nuts. So I didn't pick up the pine nuts and try and place them on top of the cookie. I just had the cookie and then I dipped it into the pine nuts and then put it onto the parchment lined paper and pressed it down gently. I didn't want to press it too hard because I had read some people who said it stuck to the parchment paper. Okay. Then when I had those cookie sheets full of the raw cookies, I put them back in the fridge for another 30 minutes because of your situation. Yes. Yes. So it sounds like you maybe almost had a whole hour of additional chilling or not even additional chilling that wasn't in the original recipe. Yes. An an additional hour that wasn't in the recipe. And in step five, this recipe tells you to bake both sheets in the oven at the same time and switch the positions. I've always had trouble with that. Even if I follow the instructions, I just don't feel like they turn out as well. So I baked mine one sheet at a time on the middle rack. And so mine turned out beautifully. I just... Yes, they did. Yeah, I couldn't have been happier. So I made some really good notes here. So in batch one, I placed them on my baking stone and cooked them for 12 minutes. And Mm -hmm. then I moved them to my upper rack for three minutes because at that 12 minute, they were still pretty creamy white and the pine nuts still looked pretty raw. And I thought, no, I want those pine nuts to be brown. Toasted. Yes. Yeah. Right, right. For batch two, I just decided, okay, I'm going to just go and leave them on the stone the whole time. And that worked out just fine. And it's really interesting if you watch them, and it sounds similar to yours, how they just change so suddenly. Yes, yes. At 12 minutes, they were still white. And right about 15, 16, 17 minutes, you can just see the browning happening. I am just mystified by what might have happened. I mean... It stands to reason that my almond paste wasn't what was required, but that is a bit of a mystery because they tell you that, you know, if you don't use this correct almond paste, which for all intents and purposes, I believe I had the right stuff. You know, we were going over the ingredient list last week and mine matched up exactly with what you were saying. I know I didn't buy marzipan. I know I didn't buy like a Danish filling or something like that. Um, And, you know, they say if you if you have the wrong stuff, the consistency won't be correct. But they don't tell you what what the problem will be. Will that make a melted cookie or will that make too crumbly of a dough? So it's hard for me to know if it was about the almond paste. Maybe it was about the fan oven. You know, the fact that it happened so fast, maybe I should have pulled them before then. Yeah, it's a bit of a it's a bit of a head scratcher. <laughs> Again, the taste was really good. So I'm really sorry that they melted into one amorphous lump. But <laughs> oh, darn it. Well, you know, I ended up with three batches of these and for a total of 30 cookies. Um, so actually, since I spent 45 on the ingredients, 30 cookies, these really are the $1.50 cookie, I guess I should <laughs> I should call them. <laughs> for your gold-plated cookie jar. <laughs> I did make one other change, and that is when I was looking at photos, a lot of people did powdered sugar on top, and I thought Mm -hmm. that looked really pretty, so I did that. And I also wanted to make the note, in step five, the recipe says slide the cookies on the parchment onto racks to cool completely, and then peel the cookies from the parchment. When I tried peeling the cookies from the parchment, it actually left the dough behind. So I just used my thin metal spatula to scrape them off, and that worked great. Okay. Yeah, I can't speak to that since mine were really stuck. So, 
<laughs> so I really liked the flavor of these. I don't think it's something you're going to just plow through like a bag of Oreos. They are very rich. They've got that very distinctive almond flavor. I ate one or two of them on the first day and enjoyed it. I ate a few on the second day and enjoyed it. I gave them to my husband, and he gave the um, incredibly uh, insightful comment, these taste like almond paste, <laughs> which mm. I hadn't Yeah, I hadn't told him what was in them. So, you know, it is kind of funny. You, you go to all this work, and you get all these ingredients, and at the end of the day, they really do just kind of taste like that almond paste, which, yes. you know, no surprise. I mean, there's two full so cups much of, of it, it in the recipe. Mm. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah. You know, Andrea, when I was thinking about these, and especially after I saw your picture, and just, I mean, again, I the taste was very, very good, very sophisticated. These would be a really nice addition if you were having a tea tray with those Earl Grey shortbread. Yes. Mm-hmm. That's what I thought. These are a grown-up cookie, and I think I will try them again. You know, who knows? Maybe that almond paste is going to be on sale, or I'll come into a windfall of it. Who knows? Pinolis falling from the sky. Well, I've um, got it's four worth, boxes. Right. So <laughs> send them my way. <laughs> yeah. I think we can have an almond paste party at this point. But I really do appreciate your notes on chilling. I guess I would encourage folks wanting to bake along with the pinoli if they haven't already to really follow that because it sounds like that made the world of difference. Yeah. And you can't do anything about your fan oven. That's the only other thing that yeah. we had different in that right. recipe. So um, it certainly can't hurt to chill, I guess, is what I'm thinking. Stefan, hopefully you will have better luck with this week's Bake Along, and that is the easy 10-minute tiramisu. This comes from Gemma Stafford over at Bigger Boulder Baking. Oh, Andrea, she wrote one of the cookbooks that you discussed in our fall cookbook roundup. Am I right? Yes, you are right. And then shortly after that, I saw on her Instagram feed a picture of this tiramisu with the caption, you only need 10 minutes on the weekend to make this incredible dessert. I promise you, you will love it. Oh, the best. Yeah. And then, of course, you know, my friend had challenged me to make a tiramisu. So I thought, well, this is perfect. I'm going to look this one up. Now, what I think is so interesting about this recipe is that it can be an easy 10-minute tiramisu, and that's great. Um, But it can be a lot more complex because she also includes options to make your own homemade ladyfingers and make your own homemade mascarpone cheese. Oh, so you could spend 10 hours. Yes. Stefan, you may not know that tiramisu actually means pick me up or cheer me up. Aw. It is a coffee-flavored Italian dessert, and you mentioned last week Mm. that you weren't a huge fan of it, and I was thinking it was because it almost always has that coffee in it, and you're more of a tea person than a coffee person. Yeah, that's one of the reasons, definitely. I think the tiramisu's that I've had have that very strong coffee flavor because what you're doing is soaking those lady finger biscuits in the coffee, and so it is a very prevalent flavor. That could definitely be one of the reasons. Yes, the classic dessert is made of those lady fingers, as you mentioned, dipped in coffee, layered with a whipped mixture of eggs and sugar and mascarpone cheese, and then flavored with cocoa. Yep. Um, You also mentioned that it was kind of a trendy dessert, and so I looked up the origin of tiramisu, and it looks like it dates its invention back to the 1960s from a region of Italy called Veneto, and from a particular restaurant there. And I'll have you know, Stefan, Mm -hmm. that historical records stated that tiramisu has aphrodisiac effects, (laughs) and in fact was served in brothels at the time. 
Well, put that on a conversation heart. (laughs) We're happy to bring it to our listeners here for their own home usage. Well, Andrea, as I'm reading the ingredients and the preparation and having never made this before, I am really struck by the fact that it is very similar to a British trifle. It is a layering dessert. You are layering the cake or the biscuits with the cream and in case here, the chocolate and the sugar and the other things as well. And like an icebox cake or other things we've done like this in the past, you're letting the fridge really do all of the work. So this is a brilliant no-bake as well. It is. And I've not made a trifle. I have made quite a few tiramisus. And the ones that I've made have been more complex. Okay. So what Gemma has done to turn this into a 10-minute tiramisu is remove the eggs. Yes. So typically you make a custard and you whip that custard in with the whipped cream and the mascarpone. By not using the eggs, you can make this a lot faster. And as she mentions in her recipe, no one's going to say, where's the eggs? You're not even going to notice. No. And you know, Andrea, also I'm really encouraged here because there is a chocolate variation And because I'm not a huge coffee person, would you be okay if this week I tackled the chocolate variation? I'll allow it. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you, Valentine. Yeah, she actually has quite a few options. So, you know, her 10-minute version is with ladyfingers that you purchase at the grocery store and mascarpone that you purchase at the grocery store. But she has options for making both of those on your own. I can tell you right now, I am not going to be making my own homemade ladyfingers or mascarpone cheese. How about you? Yeah. No, both of those ingredients are so easy. I feel that they are both high quality off the shelf Mm -hmm. as well. And so I think, you know, the the appeal of this really to me is that it's a 10-minute. It is a fast, but should be sophisticated and classy dessert at the end of that. In addition to those ladyfingers and the mascarpone, you're also looking at a cup of heavy whipping cream, um, Mm -hmm. a third a cup of sugar, a little bit of vanilla extract, and then a tablespoon of amaretto or brandy, which she lists as optional but yummy. (laughs) I went to my little stash of those miniature liqueur bottles, which I don't know about you, but those are available for me at Cost Plus World Market. And they've really helped my baking because if I had a huge bottle of amaretto, I, I don't even know how long it would take me to get through it. But it's so nice to have one of those little bottles that has yeah, it's the perfect yeah, size, it's like a quarter cup maybe. So I always look okay. for those. And then of course the two cups of espresso or strong coffee at room temperature. And the chocolate variation is very much the same. There's a little bit more whipping cream. There's some bittersweet chocolate. Then your mascarpone, your sugar, vanilla, also the coffee. And what you do then is dip the cookies in the coffee and then layer with the whipped mixture of the cream and the chocolate and the cheese and oh I don't know I think I think it has the potential to really change my mind about tiramisu yeah it looks amazing Uh, there is another variation with berries so if someone wants Mm, to do that if they don't want the whole chocolate scenario that both you and I are going to be experimenting with because I'm definitely going to use the cocoa on top then you can go with that berry version. And do keep in mind that the final instruction on this recipe is to refrigerate it for two to four hours. She says that it gets even better in the fridge and is the perfect make-ahead dessert. So we thought with Valentine's Day being on a Friday this year, and of course I've already cautioned you against going out, I wanted (laughs) you to have a nice dessert already in your fridge, and you can have your sweetheart make you dinner, and then you can just pop out this tiramisu and just be a big hero. 
And, you know, I'm glad you mentioned about the resting time because the chocolate version actually rests for four to six. Oh, So that okay. is a, even a little bit more. But, you know, she says it just gets better. You, you know, you could do it in the morning, have it ready at dessert time. And the other thing is it, it sounds like it makes quite a bit. I don't see a serving size per se. Oh, 10. So maybe you're just having a get-together with friends or you're doing something as a nice group and that will be a perfect dessert hmm. for, for 10, up to 10 people as well. Now, mine says six servings fascinating <laughs> the chocolate must just be extra maybe a little bigger perhaps moorish as you would say moorish no i should come up with the italian word for what that would be mm. i just can't wait to have our listeners weigh in on this one as well i feel like we're going to get a lot of different variations and suggestions and things that they're going to do so i'm very excited well, remember, we'll have a link to all of the recipes we've talked about today. That was the Pignoli from Gourmet Magazine via Epicurious, as well as the Tiramisu by Gemma Stafford. We'll have those linked in our show notes for this episode, which is episode 163. That's on our website, preheatedpodcast.com, as well as in our Facebook listeners group. Stefan, in this month of love, what better ingredient to discuss than chocolate universally associated with Valentine's Day desserts or gifts? You might recall that we had a whole month devoted to chocolate back in March of 2019. Oh, yes. That was your daughter's idea. Yes. And we experimented with both milk and dark chocolate. Let's see. What did I like most that month? The salted chocolate cookies made with rye flour from episode 115. Those sweet little milk chocolate pots from episode 116. Or the salted chocolate pistachio babka buns from episode 117. <laughs> It's impossible to pick, but I have to say the babka buns were something we made together. So in my mind, those rank pretty high. We also revisited our chocolate fascination in May of 2019 when we published your interview with chocolate expert Jennifer Earle. That was after you'd traveled around the London neighborhood of Mayfair on her chocolate ecstasy tour. And listeners, if you missed that interview, go back and listen to episode 126. Yeah, I learned so much from that tour. And in fact, it was after speaking with Jennifer in my interview that I started reevaluating my perception of milk chocolate. So before the tour, before speaking with Jennifer, I considered milk chocolate a treat enjoyed mostly by children, while dark chocolate, and in fact, the more bitter, the better, was what I thought sophisticated chocolate <laughs> lovers, such as myself, gravitated toward. In general, I lean towards sweeter chocolate, and I've had to adjust a little since moving to the UK. As you have heard me mention for almost three years now, the entire notion of semi-sweet chocolate by that name is absent in the UK. And this affects me most obviously with semi-sweet chocolate chips, though my friends and family have done an amazing job keeping me stocked up. And excitingly, I'm starting to see some high-end semi-sweet chips offered at my Whole Foods. Oh. But what I often do is use a mix of bitter and milk chocolate to make an approximation of an off-the-shelf semi-sweet that is so prevalent in the U.S. One of my go-tos is Green and Black's organic chocolate, which I can find in most of my grocery stores. I've seen they have a milk chocolate bar that is 37% cocoa. Is that the type that's starting to change your mind about milk chocolate, Andrea? Yes. So compare that cocoa percentage to a typical Hershey's bar, which weighs in at just 11% cocoa. Mm. And that's when you realize we're talking about two entirely different things. Yeah. For a long time, I just assumed dark chocolate bars were the ultimate chocolate because they were so pure while thinking milk chocolate was kind of junky and packed with sugar and preservatives. I never really stopped to read the labels on these new milk chocolate bars or look into their contents more closely. 
so I hadn't noticed that some producers were marketing a different type of milk chocolate. I'll forgive you for the oversight, since the big (laughs) companies, Cadbury in the UK and Hershey's in the US, are the favorites for most young kids, mine being no exception. Now, if I remember correctly, cocoa beans plus cocoa butter make a dark chocolate bar, while a milk chocolate bar has added powdered milk and sugar. Is that right? Yes. So by law in the United States, a milk chocolate bar only needs to contain 10% cocoa, while in the EU, this number is 20%. So the lower the cocoa contents, the cheaper it is to manufacture. So in a lot of commercial milk chocolate, the rest of the bar, that remaining 90%, is made up of sugar and other preservatives, Mm. which is why milk chocolate often has this bad reputation. But now there are some craft milk chocolate bars that may be changing this perception. And as I learned on my tour, you could even have a dark milk chocolate bar. What? (laughs) Blowing my mind. Okay, so milk chocolate has to contain at least 10% cocoa or 20% in the EU. And dark chocolate is usually 55 to 80% cocoa. So what is a dark milk chocolate bar? Stefan, you'll be happy to know I did some field research on this topic at my local chocolate shop, Encore Chocolates. They had two full shelves of dark milk chocolate offerings. And so for my first taste, I stuck to those without inclusions. Inclusions, like cocoa nibs? Yes, or like bourbon or Ah, black licorice. I mean, you know, they run the gamut. But I was looking for just a pure bar without all of those interesting add-ins, although I was really tempted. Mm. Most of the dark milk chocolate bars in my store were around 45 to 60% cocoa, so I gathered a small range for tasting. I picked up one from Solstice Chocolates in Utah, and that was 54% cocoa, a bar from Dick Taylor Chocolates in California that was 58%, and the final one from Askinosi in Missouri that was a 62% cocoa. Mm. Some other really interesting makers I've read about and seen available for ordering online, although I've not yet been able to try them, are Castronova Chocolates down in Florida, and she makes four different types of dark milk chocolate bars, and then Frutition in New York, and they make a 68% dark milk chocolate bar. Mm. So all of these chocolatiers are part of a growing trend of what's called bean-to-bar chocolate makers. They're tiny producers that oversee the entire process, from sourcing the cacao beans and developing relationships with the farmers to grinding the beans and then making the bars. You know, it sounds so similar to other craft food movements from coffee to beer. And you know we're always banging on about our preheated road trip, but wouldn't it be fun to do a bean-to-bar chocolate tour? Oh, I've got a roadmap for us. Yes! I found a great book by Megan Giller, and it's called Bean-to-Bar Chocolate. And she explores the American craft chocolate movement. Then I found an article online of bean-to-bar chocolatiers in the UK. So Mm. I'll share those in the show notes for our listeners on your side. Yes. And Stefan, since I don't think I'll be visiting the UK this year, I was so excited to see my local chocolate shop here in Olympia, Washington, showcasing some offerings from Pump Street Chocolate. And this is a bakery and chocolate shop from the coast in England. Oh, wow. Well, though I'm sad I won't see you in England this year, it's nice to know you don't have to travel to a small village on Suffolk's heritage coast to try Pump Street Chocolate. (laughs) Although that does sound like an absolutely delightful day trip for me. 
Speaking of those big manufacturers you mentioned earlier, it looks like Cadbury has jumped on this dark milk chocolate trend as well. They released a line of dark milk bars back in 2018 that contain 40% cocoa and 14% milk, while their regular dairy milk bars contain 23% cocoa and 20% milk. It's being marketed as a more grown-up way to enjoy milk chocolate, as well as an alternative for people who find regular dark chocolate too bitter. Stefan, have you seen those Cadbury dark milk bars or tried them? Funny, you should ask. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I have seen them in the shops, but I never tried one until I knew we were doing this mini-segment. I encouraged our youngest preheated correspondent, a.k.a. my son, to help (laughs) me out with a taste test. He and I are both true fans of classic dairy milk, but we both liked this new darker bar too. I especially liked the texture. It was really smooth and really creamy, just like a classic dairy milk. I'd say it was definitely more robust than a milk chocolate, but it was not bitter or overbearing. It's probably the perfect entry for folks who may be new to dark chocolate, but probably not for those who have a lot of experience and really like a darker or more bitter chocolate already. I know I'm enjoying my hunt and exploration of these dark milk chocolate bars, so I'd love to hear if any of our listeners are familiar with these brands or if they've discovered some of their own. Listeners, drop us a note at host at preheatedpodcast.com or post a message over in our Facebook listeners group. Well, the timer's buzzed, and we've got to get the sprinkles on top of this episode. We release new shows every Monday morning. Tune in next week to find out if Gemma Stafford's tiramisu transformed our Valentine's Day dessert table, and listen in as we explore a classic Italian treat from new-to-us chef Giada De Laurentiis. Finally, we'll have a quick dive into Tech Talk as we discuss the growing trend of online grocery shopping and share all we've learned along with our questions that have yet to be answered. Listeners, if you'd like to get an email and a link to our full show notes every week when our episode is released, subscribe to our newsletter by visiting our website, preheatedpodcast.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where we're at Preheated Pod. And if you like our show, please tell a friend and subscribe, and consider ranking and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you download our show. Until next time, I'm Stefan Cohn in London. And I'm Andrea Ballard in Olympia, Washington. Thanks for listening and sweet dreams. is written, hosted, and edited by Andrea Ballard and Stefan Cohn in association with 24th Floor Productions. Hang on, but William Shakespeare wasn't alive in the 19th century. Oh, no, did I not say 16th century when I said him? You said 19th. Oh, yeah, that'd be a problem. <laughs> <laughs>